1: So tonight we continue our study of the book of Genesis. We're going to be in chapter 6. Uh, we're going to look at chapter 6, 7, 8, and 9 as a unit because these are the chapters that talk about the flood. And these uh, chapter 6 is a particularly important chapter. You'll see why in a minute. I'm going to um, suggest that uh, before next, uh, next study, you take the time to read these chapters, 6, 7, 8, and 9 in a book of Genesis. They are worth reading. What I'm going to do tonight is, uh, due to the, due to the um, density of the material, I'm not going to read the chapter uh, fully, but I'll read it as I go along. What I want to um, do first is give you the outline of this chapter. And the outline alone is um, of extreme importance to us, even today. Uh, briefly, recall that... Um, We've left, we've left the study last week with Seth having uh, Noah <clears throat> as a child. And that is a preparation for the episode that we uh, see here. You all know the story. Um, God decides to bring about the flood as punishment for sin. And he decides that Noah will be the one who will carry over the remnant, the eight people who will survive. And uh, this, is exa- this is what happens in Chapter 6. Now, one thing I would like to point out to you, uh, I want to bring to your attention, even though I'm not going to be spending much time on, but it is worth uh, our while, I think, to spend a little bit of time meditating on the moral sense and putting ourselves in, in Noah's shoes for a minute. Uh, sometimes we may not have the right devotion for all the Old Testament saints that we ought, but we do owe him a big... Um, a big debt of gratitude for what he has done. But I want you to imagine what he must have gone through when God told him two things. Number one, actually three things. Number one, he's going to bring about the flood. Number two, he must build an ark. And number three, there's going to be only eight people surviving. Imagine Noah going back to his wife. Just imagine the scene. Honey, i got some news. God spoke to me today. Oh, And what did He say? He said I should build an ark. Well, you know what? That's a great idea. I always thought we need an ark right in front of our house. You know, one just like your parents. We've been married for 300 years and been waiting for 100 years to have that ark. Well, actually, it's going to be a little bit, the ark is going to be a little bit bigger than that. How big? Big. And could you tell me why you have these two elephants and giraffes standing right behind you? I mean, what kind of conversation they must have had? Now, that sounds funny in a sense, because he must have looked crazy building an ark in the middle of nowhere. There's no beach where he lived. So imagine, imagine if you were to go tell your mom. Mom, uh, God spoke to me. He wants me to build a spaceship. How's that going to sound? But there's another part to it. Honey, not only he wants me to build an ark, but I'm going to tell you something else. You know, mom and dad and your brothers and their kids and their wives, they're all going to die. Would you? Can you even imagine what that must have been to make this kind of announcement? So, it was not easy. When God comes... People sometimes say, I, I, I wish God talked to me. Right? You should always watch for what you ask for. All right. Moses has the right reaction. Moses had the right reaction. Uh, nope, not me. Find somebody else. Because when God comes and asks you something, you're going to have to bear the brunt of it. He gives you the graces for it, but understand that He's going to ask a lot of you. So, Mo- Noah is truly a saint and we owe him a debt of gratitude for what he had to suffer so that we today are here. So, that, that's, it. that's an angle that I think is really worth meditating on. That's not what I'm going to do tonight. What I'm going to do is really focus on the structure of this chapter. And what I would like to start by... Um, the, the, the very first thing I want to start with is giving you the structure of this chapter, which is really the structure of the way that God deals with us whenever He's ready to unleash the curses of the covenant. This is the pattern. This is why this chapter has been written. This chapter was written to present to us the pattern that God uses to 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 deal with wayward, sinful children. And that pattern is, in a fundamental sense, apocalyptic. This chapter is an apocalypse, in a real sense of the word. It's a revelation, and that revelation is bringing about the end of an age. The end of an age. We tend to think that... we're, We're kind of binary in our thinking process. Either God... Either God um, keeps us alive, or it's the end of the world, and there's nothing in between. Well, for most of us, there's going to be something in between, it's called death. But there's also something else, which is the end of an age, where God brings about the end of a political system, political power, that is opposing the church. And there's a pattern to this, and I'm going to walk you through it now. So, the first, this pattern has really nine parts. And the first is the trigger the covenantal trigger something triggers God's wrath and those are found in verses one and two of the chapter so in verses one and two we read the following when man began to multiply in the face of the ground and daughters were born to them the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were fair and they took to and they took to wife such of them as they chose that's the trigger never mind right now what this business of the sons of God and daughters of men is, just realize that there is always a trigger point, something that causes God to make this decision that He's about to unleash the judgment. And He doesn't do it right away. There are typically a series of proclamation announcing that this is coming, and typically three. We're going to find three here. There are three in the book of Revelation. right? So the first proclamation we find in verse 3. Here's God making that announcement. And He says, Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh, but his days shall be 120 years. Um, He is not necessarily talking about a reduction in the lifespan of man. He's talking about the three generations that God is going to give for people to repent. Because from this announcement to the flood, 120 years shall come to pass. That's the first announcement. Sometimes the first announcement is clearly communicated. Other times it is not. It is decreed but not communicated. And, and there are other occasions where it is communicated to unbelievers in one way and to believers in a different way. Okay? And I will, uh, I will walk you through that in a minute as well. As a result of this, when the first annu- annun- announcement comes, there is typically men's reaction, which tends to be confirmation in sin. You think they would repent. They actually don't. They go at it with, with more enthusiasm. And how do we see that? Uh, verses 4 to 5. Verses 4 to 5. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward when the sons of God came into the daughters of men and they bore children to them. They were the mighty men that were of old, the men of renown. So effectively, they not only go about it, but they turn it into an act of glory. It becomes something to boast about. So this this is sort of a confirmation in sin that happens because... When God takes action, when God says something to us, we always react. And we react in one of two ways. Either we repent or we harden our hearts. Those are the two options. Or we're indifferent, which really falls under, under hardening of heart. Either we repent or we harden our hearts. So God says something to us through the church. Don't do this. And you see two reactions. People who go, whoops, and they figure out a way to stop doing it. People who go, well, who are you to tell me what to do? Right? And history demonstrates that it's the minority that actually listens and the majority that doesn't. Right? I don't think it is, it is um, news to this group that the majority, the majority of Catholics go to hell. I'm not, I hope, making any announcement here. If it is, well, so be it. But the majority of Catholics do go to hell, as is the majority of the world. Right? This is a constant teaching of all the fathers. They're unanimous on this. And it comes from the Lord himself. Wide and easy is the way that leads to to perdition. And many, many take it. And hard and difficult is the way that leads to salvation. And few find it. And that is why St. Paul reminds us, seek your salvation with fear and trembling. So here we, we see again, the majority of these people fell into it. And then, right after that, we have the second proclamation. So, God, God reacts to that and confirms what is going to happen. Verses 6-7, through seven, we read, And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So, the Lord said, I will blot out man, whom I have created from the face of the ground, man and beast and creeping things and birds of the air, for I am sorry that I have made them. Okay? So, now we see this affirmation. First announcement. Second announcement. Remember the meaning of three in Hebrew. Right? There is no superlative. So in order for you to say the best, you would say good, good, good three times. It's the only way you can say the best. So God now is announcing this a second time. And notice in this case, it is still sort of in the council of the Trinity. It has not been communicated to man. In the book of Revelation, we see right straightforward, Christ He's walking among the churches and He's speaking to them. And then when we hit the seals, the seven seals, this is the annunciation enunci- of what is to come to the world. It is done through the language of nature. So God speaks to the unbelievers through nature and to the believers through the church. Because now there is the church. Back then there wasn't. Okay? What happens after that? Well, we have the Remnant. The remnant is identified, and it's right here, verses 8 and 9. And, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God, and Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. So here is the remnant. These are the people who shall remain. You know, it's always funny when you hear these, uh, you know, um, funny, maybe not funny, but it's always... Sort of intriguing to me to hear many of the Protestants talk about the rapture, right? That God will come and will take the right and believers up, and and the unbelievers will stay here. And it's really based on on um, passages from Scripture where the Lord says, right? When the Son of Man comes, there'll be two women; one will be taken, one shall remain. And people think, oh. Well, the one who's taken is the lucky one, and the one who remains is the one who's stuck. But they don't understand that he's actually making reference to this passage right here. The one who are taken are the one under water. And those who remain are the blameless ones. They got it completely reversed. Alright? So that's, this is the remnant. Those are the ones who remain. Why? Because the intent of God is to remove any obstacle That is preventing his covenant from flowing through. Understand that when God makes a covenant, his word shall not be broken. His word will be fulfilled. And that's what we see. It will be fulfilled. With us or without us, but it will be fulfilled. All right. Then. To the remnant, God announces the revelation. He makes it known. God does not leave us orphaned. When there is a punishment, when there is a curse about to be unfolded, God makes it known to the believers in a multitude of ways. He does not leave us alone. And the revelation is of God's plan is from verse 11 to 22. And that's the essentially God telling Noah what to do, and I'll go through the structure of that in a moment. Then, following the, the revelation, there is the covenantal execution. So in that revelation, we've seen God speaking three times, saying, I'm going to do it, I'm going to do it, I'm going to do it, and he does it. Okay? And then he does it. And that's the execution of the covenant, and that's chapter 7. We'll go through the flood. Following that, the, the, the eighth part is the renewal. God renews the world, that's chapter 8, and in chapter 9, God blesses the world. Right? So, in, in outline, what we have then is a movement that consists of two major parts. One part, which is called a decreation, and I'll show you that, where effectively God is pulling back the world, de-cre- uncreating it, so to speak. So, for instance, the flood is seen as the joining of these two waters that God separated in the creation. God separated the waters from above and the waters from below, while the flood merges them back. Right? And we'll see how the language itself is structured in such a way as to indicate that the actions are almost a reverse of creation. That's why in the book of uh, Revelation, you will hear St. John saying the, the, the sky was rolled back like a scroll. Right? That's why the prophets, when they wanted to indicate that an empire was about to come to an end, used images of decreation. The sun will fall, uh, the, stars, the stars will fall, the sun will not give us light, the moon will turn red. And then we think cosmically, implying laws of physics, and we get all confused. What they really mean is... This is a decreation. God is taking away what was created to put something better in place. So, decreation following by a new creation. So, the concept of a new world, by the way, is not new age. It is Catholic. The concept of a new world is Catholic. But what happened is that once the Catholic Church ceased to be able to uh, permeate the world with notions of holiness and notions of, um, of uh, sanctity, the world hungered for something else and took the scraps that had fallen and made up for itself a new God in this new age thing. But the foundation of it is profoundly Catholic, but we failed to communicate that to them, that there is a new world to come. And I do not mean the final new world. I mean a renewal of the world, a renewal of this order. Okay? So that's why this this chapter is of fundamental importance to us because it teaches us how God acts towards us. Now, I'll I'll remind you that through the uh, gifts of the Holy Spirit, we all have the gift of prophecy. Prophecy is not foretelling a future. That's only a small part of prophecy. Prophecy is the understanding of our own time according to Scripture, according to the mind of God. That's what prophecy is. Looking at the world through the prism of Scripture. When we do that, we exercise the prophetic gift that God gave us. Because God intends for us to understand the signs of the times. He expects us to understand the signs of the times. But we cannot understand the signs of the times unless we understand how He acts towards us. So when we look at our current landscape, definitely it, it gives us a sense that something is happening. Everybody has this sort of a sense of a, you know, doom hanging over their heads. And, and if you are in a financial sector like I am, you'd have the sense even more, um, maybe more strong than others because you see what is coming. You see the storm, and it's a big storm, and we've just seen the tip of it, okay? So, But when we look at it, we can't tell if that is part of God's plan to bring about the curses that the world deserves to receive, to put an end to the obstacle that is preventing the church from passing on the message of the gospel and converting people. We can only do, do so after the fact, by properly interpreting them in light of this pattern. It is obvious, it is obvious once you have this pattern, it is obvious that many elements are in place today. But one cannot at this juncture conclude that this is what is about to happen. But definitely things are in place. But remember the 120 years that it took between the time that God decreed and the time that God acted. He's very patient. All right. Any questions so far? Before I, I delve into the details. Yes, the question is very good question. Is it sent by God or do we choose to be in the situation? And the answer, the obvious Catholic answer is both. Both, right? Um, obviously, we God established the covenant and He set the covenants before us, and we He told He told us choose life. When we don't choose life, we effectively trigger the curses of the covenant. If you understand the covenant, if you understand that you are part of the covenant, whether you like it or not, that you're not at freedom to choose whether you want to be in the covenant or out of it, you are in it. There's no choice. The only choice you have is, will you be faithful to that covenant? Or will you be unfaithful? And that preconditions God's reaction. I'll I'll say more about this in a minute. Yes. Yes. When you are baptized, you are brought into the covenant of God by your parents who have authority over you. Alright? That's the authority of the parents. Remember, um, the blessing of a a parent or the curse of a parent is very strong. And God takes that very seriously. We are not individuals. This is not me and my Jesus religion. My Jesus and I is a heresy. Right? It is God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, and the church religion. This is what our faith is all about. So, uh, that's, that's where the choice is made. And then, God calls us, therefore, to live faithfully according to this covenant. And when He does, when we do so, He blesses us. When we don't, He curses us. And some of the curse, most of it, initially is medicinal. Come back, come back to me, come back to me. And if we persevere in refusing, then it becomes final. And it's justified by His justice. Yes. Those who are not baptized cannot attain unto heaven. Therefore, they are under the curse of original sin unless they, through invincible ignorance, not knowing anything about Jesus Christ, obey the dictator of their hearts, meaning the Ten Commandments, which presumably is a very rare thing. Because if everybody could do it, Jesus did not need to die on the cross. All right? So that's why there is this necessity of evangelization. The church must always be an evangelical church evangelizing, reaching out to people, converting them to Christ for the purpose of salvation of their souls. And when this is not possible, what happens? The world then becomes what? A machine creating souls damned to hell. And God in His mercy will not let that go forever. He will put an end to it, allowing His church to go out and reach the people and extend the mercy of God to them. You understand? Very good. So, with that in mind, let's now go through the details. So, as I told you, from this, from this structure here, we have a, an element of decreation. And you will see that there's a transposition of the order in one of the verses I read to you, where we start with man... Then we go to animal life, then plant life, then water. So, in creation, we went from water to plant life, to animal life, to man. Now we're going back. So, God is pulling this out. And, um, for instance, if you consider Revelation, the book of Revelation, chapter 6, verse uh, 14. Let's um, go there quickly. So let me read from verse 12 in, chapter, in the 6th in chapter of Revelation. When he opened the sixth seal, I looked and behold, there was a great earthquake and the sun became black as sackcloth. The full moon became like blood and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that is rolled up and every mountain and island was removed from its place. That is decreation this is not a physical description of what happens to the world. This is a description that indicates God is basically rolling back creation to put something better in place. All right? And that's why many people anguish over the the sentences of Jesus when he says, when you see the stars falling and they think, oh my God, we are going to have, you know, stars falling on us. How's that going to happen? And physically, and what about the sun? Well, no, that's not what he had in mind at all. All He was simply basically saying, your time is up. Right? Because in, in ancient civilizations, they used the sun, the moon, and the stars to, to for what? For a calendar. So he's breaking the clock and saying, time's up. Your kingdom, your political power, your entity, or whatever, is over. That's the meaning of the image. Right? So this is an example of a difference between the literal sense and the literalist sense. The literalist sense will literally take it to mean the stars are falling on us. The literal sense, understand this to be a metaphor, an image, used to, to say, time's up. It's over. See, this is the distinction that you make between the two. Alright. Now, let's go through these verses in order. When, man, when men began to multiply on the face of the ground and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were fair and they took to, to wife such of them as they chose. As I told you, this is the covenantal trigger. Now, Other examples of covenantal triggers are in Daniel chapter 5 and Isaiah chapter 28 and Matthew chapter 23. The trigger of the curses. There's a a particular event that happens that causes the trigger. And um, I'll tell you that since God established the priestly order, more often than not, the trigger of the covenant of the curses is when the priestly order become corrupt. So when the priests and the bishops in the hierarchy cease to proclaim the truth, when the priests and the bishops cease to teach about contraception forcefully and work diligently to rid their parishes from people who are contracepting, I don't mean throw them out. I mean tell, tell them that they're in sin and help them to repent. When they're really not working on allowing the Catholics to live a holy life, God knows that the flow of grace has been blocked at, at its source, so to speak. Grace cannot flow anymore. Which means people and their children are going to be damned to hell. Right? So I'll give you an example to the degree which we are not even aware of what we're doing these days. Very few people are aware that speaking unnecessarily in church is a venial sin. They don't know that. They treat the church as a hall. Mass is ended. We all applaud. By the way, it's wrong to applaud. Okay? We shouldn't be doing it. But we do it. And then we get up and we say hi. and We start talking loudly. And the King of Kings, the Trinity, is still enthroned right in front of us. And we just turn our backs and we just talk as if they don't exist. Pardon? Sing and clap. I'm talking about the liturgy. In, in, the Catholic, in the Catholic Church, according to every rite. Now, if, if parts of the right is to sing and clap, is that's part of the culture, it's a completely different thing. Performances, performances, yeah, well, that should not be happening either. Um, so, also, um, I mean, there'll be, I'm not gonna go there. This is just one example I can give you of the level at which we have reached today. So, people don't know that. <coughs> They, they, they don't know when they sit in church, they're not supposed to put, put one foot on top of the other. Crossing the, they're not supposed to do that. Because you, when you cross your leg, you're indicating you're comfortable. You are sitting with peers. God is not your peer. God is not my peer. God is God Almighty. This is holy ground. This is not a saloon. This is not a living room. We've lost the sense of Holiness. And that's because it's not being taught. The architecture of our churches doesn't teach us that. On and on it goes. Okay. This is not a gripe about what's going on right now. It's just to indicate to you, give you a glimpse of how far we have gone. So, one of the triggers is when the hierarchy is not able, for whatever reason anymore, to pass that message. God knows he's got a clean house. Okay? So, those, verses, those, those parts I gave you are, are good examples of where this happens. Daniel 5 Isaiah 28, Matthew 23. Now, going back to these two verses, the interesting thing, as usual, is that no name are given. When men began to multiply, no names. Okay. So you all know that when somebody goes to hell, he loses his name. The name is gone. Right? Because your, your identity is completely transformed to something else, something rather ugly. Right? So this anonymity indicates that the author is not particularly pleased with what's going on. So, but yet, they are multiplying. And God said... Multiply and fill the earth. Why is, he not, why is he not happy? There's a simple reason why. Because when men multiply in sin, right, you know that it's going to be a lot harder to put a stop to it, to put an end to it. Okay? So you know, for instance, that the, the, the suffering of the damned in hell increases as more and more people go to hell. All right? And there's a number of reasons why this is the case. I don't have time to go through it, through this. Right? But um, the, the multiplication here isn't particularly good. Now let's see why. And daughters were born to them. So men and then the sons of God. Who are the sons of God? I'm sure that if you read the footnotes in some of your Bible books, you might see that, I may say, that the sons of God were actually fallen angels. Okay. This is a... Um, This is a theory that you will find, for instance, among um, the uh, Jewish interpretation. they are fallen angels. uh, Saint Clement of Alexandria and Nemesius of Emesa, who was also a commentator, argued that point, that the sons of God are fallen angels. How are we to understand that term? How are we to figure out what it means? Well, as usual, we follow what the Church teaches us. That is, we need to understand the meaning of Scripture according to the whole of Scripture. So we go and look in Scripture to see where this expression is used and in which context. So, all right, so let me um, let me basically give you the, the 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 gist of the story. The this issue of um, the sons of god. So, in Job, in the book of Job chapter 1 verse 6, chapter 2 verse 1 and 38 verse 7, we read So, Job 1 six two one thirty eight seven. We read one day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and the context clearly indicates angels, because Satan came with them. Alright? Don't worry right now about this. There is a, as usual, a really good meaning for this, but I don't have time to go through this. Right. The point is Satan was among them and these were angels. Deuteronomy chapter thirty two verse eight. When the Most High assigned the nations their heritage, when He parceled out the descendants of Adam, He set up the boundaries of the peoples after the number of the sons of God. He set up the boundaries of the peoples after the number of the sons of God. That's one of the bases that says that the number of the elect will be equal to the number of fallen angels. So that, that, that's, we basically replace the, the fallen angels in heaven. So obviously there are passages of Scripture where the sons of God do indicate angels. What is the problem with this particular explanation? The problem with the explanation is many, many fold. It has to do with the angelic nature, first of all. It has to do with the hatred that the, the demons have towards us. There is an underlying thought that for the demons to consider the flesh of man as any kind of good, uh, is an, for, for us to think that the demons might think that the way we look with a body is a good thing, is actually not understanding the hatred they they hold for us they hate us so profoundly that it would be equivalent to say that a uh, uh, um, uh, a hungry man wanted to eat a rat right That is nothing compared to the hatred they have for our bodies, so it's a misunderstanding of the nature of the, 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 the demonic hatred towards man. They just want us completely destroyed. They would have nothing to do with us we are, we are uh, the worst thing that happened to them. You understand that? Okay. And by the way, don't be concerned if you hear me say that. And don't be concerned that, oh, well, maybe if I start praying or doing something, maybe the devil will attack me more. i got some news for you. The devil is absolutely incapable to hate you more than he hates you right now. The angelic nature is not like ours. There's no change. He hates always as much as he can. You understand that? Okay. But then, we have passages like in Wisdom 5, verse 1 through 5. I can't read the whole passage right now. But Wisdom 5, uh, 5, 1 through 5, it's actually a text about the suffering servant. And it's clearly a human being. And in verse 5, it says, See how he is accounted among the sons of God how his lot is with the saints. So here is the sons of God used about humans. So scripture does not use the sons of God in a uniform way only about angels. It uses it also about humans. Therefore, we are not obligated to understand it in that context, All right? We have a free liberty. There's another passage, 2 Corinthians 6:16 6, through 18. 2 Corinthians 6:16 6, through 18. Again, I'm not going to read the whole thing. Verse 18, And I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. St. Paul. right? Quoting Scripture. So, here is another quote that clearly shows that this passage does not necessarily apply to angels. So, now we have a choice. Which of these would apply? I gave you the reasons why I don't think it would apply to angels. Let me give you the reasons why I think it applies to men. And um, in, in this regard... I do follow St. Ephraim who argues that these are the sons of Set. The sons of God are the sons of Set. Why? The covenant. One more time. What happened to Cain before he died? He was cursed. What does it mean to his entire line? They're cursed. You understand that? They are cursed. Yeah? You're with me? Set, on the other hand, is not under the curse. He is walking according to the covenant. So he is part of God's family. What does the covenant do? It makes you part of God's family. You become sons and daughters of the Most High. All right? So the sons of God, meaning the men among the family of Set, looked at the daughters of men. Who are the daughters of men? The daughters of Cain. And what did they do? They took them for wives. And what's wrong with that? Yeah, they're cursed, but but there's something worse. Okay, they're cursed, but what are they doing when they actually go ahead and marry a woman who is of the line of Cain? Yes? Yes, but why? You're right. Their line is no longer holy, but what is the fundamental reason? Yes, they're opening themselves up to Father, but why? Why? For one simple reason. They are repeating the sins of Adam and Eve. look, if you knew that I was holding a box, and I told you this box is cursed. If you take it, you'll die. Would you take it? Okay. So, let's say you somebody comes and grabs the box, and three seconds later, he's dead. Would you take the box? No, no you wouldn't. Why? Because you are certain this is evil, right? Okay. These men went after these women, knowing full well they're cursed. So what did they decide? But no, they decided that curse doesn't matter. God's words doesn't matter. I will know good and evil. I will call evil good. That is the fundamental trigger. It's when man, when the flower of evil, evil reaches its, its summit when we no longer think of it as evil. We think of it as good. Do you understand? That is the fundamental problem here. They're saying to God, um, your curse doesn't matter. We know better. And we're going to just do what we think. You understand? That's the trigger. So you see, when I consider two explanations, one where, okay, it's the angels, but we really have a problem because the angels are spirits, number one. Number two, they hate us so much they would never want to touch us. Well, talk, I'm talking about the fallen angels. What's it going to get them? And it makes no sense, right number two, the covenant here 's the family that is cursed he 's the part of the the, the the family of adam that is cursed here 's the, the, the part that is not. if they cross the line something 's going to happen yeah, that explanation fits the text it fits the overall structure of scripture it fits the covenant that 's the explanation I would go with. you see how this works i 'll give you a story i 'll tell you a story which is a true story, and this is told by um, Uh, Father Amorth, who was the head, who was maybe still is—I don't know if he still is—the head exorcist of Rome. Uh, There is a man who wanted to, uh, yeah. There is a man who lived a devout life in Italy, and his his mother always wanted him to be a priest. He grew up and found that he didn't have a call to the priesthood. He decided to be married. When he got married, she cut off all relationship with him. She wanted nothing to do with him. So he lived with his wife, and he had a boy. When he had a boy, and the story was told by the boy by the way, uh, when he had a boy, he sent a picture of the boy to his mother, hoping that it will it will soften her heart. She wrote him back a letter saying, uh, "I curse this boy 's legs and I curse you when you come back to your town. you shall die in your bed." Now that boy was seeing Father Amorth after having undergone about twenty operations, twenty surgical operations on his legs, and nothing was working. The father one, after his mother was, was, was dead, I think, went back to his hometown. There was a, a, a celebration and felt tired. He went to his mother's house, which was his house, and slept on her bed, which is where he was born, and died that night. Does that answer your question? So it's yes. Only of the, the curse of the parents mm-hmm. is, and Father Amos says, the curse of the parents is extremely hard to break. It's very hard he to he break. Pardon? Anyone can curse anyone else, yes. But the curse of the parents and the blessings of the parents, please, not let's just look at one, let's look at the other one. The blessings of the parents is extremely powerful. So if you're leading a holy and devout life, please, every day, as much as you can, bless your children. Have holy water at home. Bless them with the authority that God gave you. That blessing is very powerful. The question is, if somebody is living a holy life in a state of grace, how can they be cursed? How can somebody living a holy life in a state of grace be shot by a bullet? John Paul II. A curse is a spiritual means to do harm to somebody. A bullet is a physical means to do harm to somebody. God allows both. Yes? But there are ways for you to protect yourself. So, you make sure you have holy images. You make sure you stay in a state of grace. You make sure to call God's uh, protection upon you, you make sure that you 're not doing anything superstitious right so for instance, uh, people from the middle east the the, the blue the blue uh, thingy for the protecting is the red eye, the blue eye the whatever eye, the reading of the of the coffee thing you 're opening yourself up right anybody who does those things open themselves up, so you don 't do any of those things you live a holy life and you wait, but there are still cases like for instance this apparently. It can happen anywhere anybody can be hit by a truck. Whatever you, do. I mean, even if you ask for protection it's not whatever you do it is God's will. Right? God's will for you is to give you what is the, the what is what you absolutely need provided that you're asking for it. So, we can't expect God to protect us when we are not spending time in prayer, we're not taking our faith seriously, we're not studying, we're, right? But if you do all these things, God will take care of us. Okay? So be not afraid. That was Jesus' message. Be not afraid. This is not about fear. This is about understanding what we're dealing with and to protect ourselves. Yeah? Okay. All right. So that's basically what I am going to say about the sons of God and hopefully uh, it makes sense to you. So the Nephilim, verse 4, were on the earth in those days and also afterward when the sons of God came into the daughters of men and they bore children to them. There were the mighty men that were of old, the men of renown. Nephilim... This word occurs only here and nowhere else. So, the meaning of it is extremely obscure. Most fathers understand it to mean giants. What giant mean? I don't know. How big they were, I got no clue. All right? Essentially, there is an indication that on the physical level, the union between the, the, the sons of Set and the daughters of men produced sons which, are, which were re- physically remarkable. Right? This is nothing knew. When Abraham entered into a covenant with God, God had two promises to Abraham. Two, not one, two. He promised that his son, one of his son, will have a land to live on from the Euphrates basically all the way up to Turkey. Well, that's obviously not Isaac who got that promise. It was Ishmael. So, to Ishmael was given the material goods. To Isaac, he got just a small patch of land, and frankly and honestly, it's not the best land in the world. The weather is not the best, it's dry, it's hard to grow stuff up, and it's a very small piece of land. So God's intent was not for them to actually grow an empire. God's intent was to do what? Build a temple, offer sacrifice, be a nation of priests, and He will bless them. Right? But they wanted. The other goods as well, right? So we see this pattern repeating where even today you think, well, hold on a second. How, how do you say that this, you know, look at these these people, like somebody like, you know, Warren Buffett. The guy is a billionaire. You know? He's one of the most ardent supporters of abortion you'll find out there. But he's a billionaire. God, you know, granted him a long life and, you know, and then some of us are scrapping, don't have a job. Or Again, same thing. God is just and he will give people the reward for the efforts they put in. We pray for his conversion. We pray that he actually sees the light and turns away from his, from his ways like so many others and come back to God. We pray for him. But God is always just, which means that our personal judgment, we have absolutely no excuse. There's no excuse. So when we meet Jesus, who is going to be the just judge, not the merciful Lord, the just judge, he's going to go through all our sins, there's absolutely no excuse. He gave us all the chances, all the chance, not the chances, all the occasions of grace that we need to be saved. He gives us more than enough, right? So that's what's what's going on here. There were men of renown. There were great. It looked like everything was fine. We're doing great. Let's have a Mardi Gras, fall into sin, and make sure we send a whole bunch of people to hell. Uh, I point out that many Jewish commentaries, actually, and translations in modern times describe the Nephilim sons of nobles rather than sons of God or sons of angels. This is also a rendering suggested in Targum Onkelos. I'm not going to go through the details of this, but there's another rendering that basically said they were noble. Basically, they were the cool crowd. They were the people who seemed to have it all. The BMWs and the iPods and all the good stuff that everybody wants. They had it. And now it's under water. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. So what happens here? Every imagination, keen on this word, the faculty of the imagination, I had mentioned this to you, is a very important faculty. You must attend to the formation of the imagination of your children. You cannot leave it to chance. So, uh, images and movies in particular must be carefully, carefully guarded against because the imagination is the store through which the... The imagination stores the words that the angels both... um, uh, holy angels and demonic used to communicate with us. So if you, if you allow your child to watch a movie and he's afraid of an image, and most kids will tell you, oh no, I wasn't afraid. And on the spot, they may not be afraid. But that image is lurking in their minds, and what happens is that the devil will use it as a puppet. He will use that weakness to come after them. You must attend to the movies, not just in terms of morality, was the movie decent, what kind of images it is. And it depends on every child and what their the constitution, what they can and cannot take. And you have to be very careful with that. Now, the wickedness of man was great in the earth. And the imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only continually evil. Now, look at our world. We're approaching that. We're not there. We're approaching that. Right? People are still generous. People give. People make donations. People want to help people. So, we can't make the claim that the, today the, the, the thoughts of man's heart is only continually evil. That's not the case, right? But we are approaching that. And what will happen if the economic situation really goes into a crisis, it will precipitate all this. All right? It will precipitate all this. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the, of the ground, man and beasts and creeping things and birds of the air, for I am sorry that I have made them. Okay, what's going on here? God is sorry? How could God be sorry? What is that? You know, An angel coming up saying, Lord, uh, we, we have a bug in the latest release of creation. It just had a blue screen of death. We have to reboot. Is, is that what's going on? God made a mistake. So what does that language is supposed to indicate? Okay, this language is supposed to indicate two things. Number one, our Lord is a is a um, is close to us. Our Lord understands us. Our Lord understands our sorrows. If God feels sorry, we're justified to feel sorry as well, to be grieved about the state of the world. Number two, it is the covenant again. The covenant. He's not sorry as if he made a mistake. When he created the world, he put two choices. And now, obviously, humanity picked the one that leads to the triggering of the curses. And God is just going to follow through. All right? So, there's no... no, Oh, well, how could God be sorry? Well, no. That that means he feels it. In Fatima, our lady, when she appeared, told the three children, Do not offend God anymore, for he is already much too offended. Those were her words. Her words to the children when she appeared. Now, imagine what she would say now. And when and when. Okay, couple couple um, more comments. The Lord saw. It doesn't mean he didn't see before. No, that's a juridical expression. That means fact-finding, assessment, and a final judgment. That's the indication. So this is a juridical language. As, as if we were in court. Right? The fact were established. Right? And then notice the order, as I told you earlier, I, I will blot out man, man is first, whom I have created from the face of the ground, man, beast, creeping things, birds of the air. The opposite order in which they were created. You see that? It's the decreation. Now, why is he blotting out the, the beast? Why is, he, you know, why is he going after the bunnies? God doesn't like bunnies? Why does He want to kill the, you know, the cats and the cows and the dogs? and What's up with that? Exactly. Because they were all created for man. And He's taking the whole thing out. Alright, very good. Now the covenantal judgment is continued. The, now we have the remnant. Verses 8-10. through 10. But Noah found favor with God. These are are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. And Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. We already spoke about Noah. Noah was blameless in his generation. Imagine that. Blameless. Imagine the graces that this man received to be blameless without without the sacraments. He was blameless. Blameless. He was a saint. He is a saint. And there's nothing that bugs me more in those books for kids when I portray Noah as sort of a Santa Claus junior. Standing there with that silly smile on his face and there's a giraffe behind him smiling too. Have you ever seen a giraffe? There's no, more, there's no animal is more serious than a giraffe. Just get me going with the giraffe smiling. The problem with this cuteness is that they take away the holiness of the man. It, they take away the covenant. They take away the seriousness of it. It looks like a really cute story. Yeah, he lost his mother and his father and his brothers and everybody else, but he's got a big grin on his face because he's got a, a bunny next to him and a giraffe on the other side. Watch out for these things because they are conveying the wrong theology. Watch out for acuteness in stories related to Scripture. They convey the wrong image. They pass on the wrong message. And your kids grow up and they're, they're completely surprised when you hear God curses and, what? Because they're really used to, you know, God of mercy and cuteness and the giraffe. And you talk to them about cursing, and it's just the end of the world. comes to them. So please be careful with that, yes. I would not show two, or three years old these images, personally. I would tell them the story, straight out from scripture, and I would not sugar sweeten it. I would tell it the way it is. or Two, three years old can take it much better than we can. To them, it's a matter of fact. Oh, okay, yeah, God is in control. The, yeah, well, you know, if you go, you, know, you take a chewing gum, when mom said no, you get slapped. Yeah, makes sense. Don't you quote it for them. So, the, the remnant proceed, uh, proceeds from two facts, as I told you. The first one is the curse of the covenant. When God, in the curse of the covenant, remember, he, he said one thing to the devil. What did he say? You will strike at her heel, and she will crush your head. Or, you will strike at his heel, and he will crush your head the The uh, article used is uh, indefinite; it can go both ways. he or she. both translations are correct, but that is a promise made to the devil. the devil is eternal. God has to bring about that that promise through human beings, hence he cannot blot out everyone. He must keep a remnant. You understand that the the The, the curses of the covenant paradoxically are what guarantees the survival of the human race. Isn't that interesting? He's not powerful. We allow him to be powerful. There's a nun who was a venerable, and one day a priest was meeting her, came to visit her, and he was sitting with her, and the devil appeared to them in, a, in the shape of a fierce monster, and the, the poor father had almost a heart attack. And the nun, when was in her bed, wasn't even, you know, phased by it, and she said, Oh, father, meet stupid. <laughs> You're stupid. And she continued the conversation. He has no power over you if you live a life of grace and you trust in God. Yes. And who won? Well, then what does that say? Yeah, he got beat up. Say career of ours got beat up. Most of us get beat up. That's okay. Christ was beat up. God allows him. No. The devil is far more powerful than we are. Any angel is far more powerful than we are. Right? If God did not restrain him, we would be gone. Right, but he restrains him. But when you uh, unite yourself with the suffering of Jesus Christ on the cross and live a life of grace, you become far more powerful than he is. You understand that the name of Mary will make them run? Okay. Holy water. Uh, obviously, holy water. But I'm just mentioning the name of one young girl of 16 years old or seven, whatever her, however old she was. It, she would rout them. The whole demons of hell cannot stand her. One woman. Okay, I'm sorry. Let's let's continue. We'll take questions after. I don't want to detract from the conversation. So, on, on the subject of angels and demons, I have a whole series on that. I'm, I don't want to repeat it right now. But, um, um, let, let, let's just keep, keep... What I want to point out to you is that in the curse, as I said, is the survival of the human uh, race. I'll point out to you Exodus chapter 32. The same thing happens there. Exodus 32, God is about to blot out the entire Israelites after they had sinned and built that uh, golden uh, calf. And he told Moses, Just Moses, step aside. I'm just going to clean the plate and start with you. It won't be Abraham, fathers of all nations, be Moses, fathers of all nations. Talk about a promotion. But what Moses said, Wait a minute, God. What would the nation say? They would say, You see, he took them out to destroy them. In other words, God's word, God promises to Abraham, assured the survival of the race. You understand? In the same vein, when Mary said yes, when Mary said yes, that yes assured the survival of the church. You realize, if Mary had said no, that would not have been salvation. That would not have been another Mary. Everything hung on her yes. Yes. So if we owe a, 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 a debt of gratitude to Noah, imagine what we owe the mother of God. And you people will say, well, she's just a vessel. Yeah, well, wait till you meet God in, in person and tell him that your mother was just a vessel. I don't want to be there. Okay. And the second reason why there's a remnant is obviously the mercy of God. Right? It's, it's the both. Right? The mercy of God. Moses, Genesis 45, 7. Read Genesis 45, verse 7. The book of Ezra, chapter 9. The book of Nehemiah chapter 1. And Romans, chapter 9. As you can see, there's enough material here in this chapter for us to last you know, six months. But we can't do that. So I'm just pointing out to you all the passages in Scripture that support the understanding of why there needs to be a remnant. Alright, so in, we're coming at the top of the hour. So what I'm going to do now is um, give a brief outline of what is going to happen next and we'll pick it up next week where we're going to um, look at the flood from beginning to end. But realize that when God saw the corruption and the violence and all flesh had uh, corrupted their way and by the way this is a good passage uh, verse 12 and God saw the earth and behold it was corrupt for all flesh had corrupted their way upon the earth. St. Paul says, all have sinned. And Protestants use that to point out to us, well, if all have sinned, how could it be that Mary right, was sinless? Right? Well, here you go. Scripture says here All flesh had corrupted their way upon the earth, yet it told us three verses earlier that Noah, who is flesh, was blameless. So you're going to understand it in context. Obviously it cannot be all flesh, because babies cannot have corrupted anything. Right? It it means the whole bunch of them all right it 's not a mathematical equation to mean every single one of them down to the last. It simply means all generally speaking that 's what happened, and we know there is a remnant and it 's a very small one all right. and when 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 that happened, God gave Noah this di- d- directive to build the the, the ark um, the the proportion of the ark is three hundred cubits long. 50 cubits wide and 30 cubits high. And what does that mean? Um, it means... I'm just going to point this out to you because it's sort of interesting. Uh, the first thing I'll tell you is that in the, in the Hebrew Bible, the, work, the word ark, teva or teba, is actually borrowed from the Egyptian. And it, it occurs another in another place in Scripture, and that is in Exodus chapter 2 from verses 3 to 5, where we hear that the mother of Moses put him into uh, Teva and let it go in the water. So that ark had no rudders. It was not supposed to be a ship that you navigate through. Okay? You're on the waters and you're tossed to and fro and you don't know where you're going. Talk about faith. The expression, actually, Teva for the Egyptians means A coffin. A coffin. And that lets St. Augustine to come up with this allegorical explanation, meaning an explanation that points to Jesus Christ, which is beautiful. And I'm going to tell you this, tell you this right now, and then we'll close with a prayer. So the cubit essentially will correspond to um, the distance between the elbow and the tip of the middle finger. So from here to about here. Uh, the, the arc basically was about um, 450 feet long. 75 feet wide and 45 feet high, right? With a displacement of about 43,000 tons. Enough space to carry the animals. to work physically. But that's the most important point. The most important point is this. The proportions are 33, 5. 30 in length, 5 in width, 3 in thickness. The interesting thing about that is that these are the proportions of a man lying on on the ground. Length, width, and height. That's why the Ark was built this way. A new man. the new creation. Through what? A tomb. So it's a coffin to fit a man. What's an image of? Okay. And St. Augustine points that the door of the, of, the, of the Ark was on its side, reflecting the wound that the Lord received on his side. So it's an image of Christ. It takes St. Augustine, obviously, to come up with something like that but you see the power of it. right? It's, it's really a new creation through death. Through death that God creates the world. Right? And so this idea that God was preparing His people to recognize Jesus when He would come was, is true because it's planted throughout all of Scripture. It's there. But it took the eyes of faith to see it. It took people who could... Re- who have spent time meditating on Scripture, understanding it, thinking about those things, and seeing Jesus acting it up and saying, wow, it is He, recognizing it. And likewise for us today. right? There's an obligation for us to pray every day. That's an obligation. If we don't, we commit a sin if we're not praying every day. It's an obligation of our faith to pray every day. We have an obligation to study Scripture because it is the face of Jesus Christ so that we can recognize Him when He comes to us. And He comes to us in many ways. We're not studying Scripture to become theologians. We're studying Scripture to welcome Christ. And there's no better way to welcome Him than through Mass. So That's how we prepare ourselves to Mass. By understanding His will for us. Let's say a word of prayer, and then we come back to questions. Please stand. In the name of the Father, of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, Amen. My Lord Jesus, we want to thank you. Dear Lord Jesus, we want to thank you tonight for all the inspirations and good thoughts you have given us. For all that you have uh, gave us, for all the graces that you have given us tonight, Lord, that you have prepared for us. We ask you, Lord, to bless us, to help us go through Lent, to offer sacrifices, to mortify ourselves. And to truly honor you and love you and show you, Lord, that we are, we are headed home. Home is where we want to go. And we ask this through the intercession of Our Lady, Queen of Angels, and Queen of our hearts as we pray. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women. Blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners. Now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Amen. Name of the Father, of the Son, of the Holy Spirit. Amen. All right, questions? The, the idea is, that, without necessarily focusing on the actual gestures, the idea is to adopt a position of humility. Right? And I don't think anybody could argue that cr- sitting and crossing your legs is a position of humility. Because it is a position that we adopt in social circles where we're comfortable. Let's say you're going to an interview. Do you sit down and take your, you know, relax and cross your legs? It's just an interview. You're facing a man who might be going to hell. You're in church. Right? So it's really in the whole context of the holiness of the place. When he told Moses, take off your sandals, this ground is holy. Imagine how holier the ground is in the church. But we treat it like a hall because we've been conditioned to treat it like a hall. That's the problem. We have to pray. If there's one thing you can do, offer sacrifices that in your parish, don't worry about the world, don't worry about what happened with the economy, don't worry about any of that stuff. Just your parish. Offer sacrifices that in your parish, people repent. In your parish, people come back to Jesus. In your parish, people go to confession and there are no sacrilegious communion. Just do that. If all of us did that across the world, our, the church will be renewed and the church will renew the world. So it only depends on us. We hold the fate of the world in our hands. That's the bottom line. Some of you had had questions uh, earlier about um, the, devil, the devil, yes. See, it's a very good question. Saints are chosen. We are all called. The word chose is not I mean, it's not really in God's language. He called us to fulfill the destiny that he had prepared for us. Each one of us are we're going to be happy when we do what God called us to do, okay? If we, say yes. if we say yes, and if we don't, well, then God is not going to abandon us. He's going to go to Plan B, and Plan C, and Plan D, and Plan Z, and Plan ZZ. He'll keep pursuing us to try to call us to Him. Right? In the case of Our Lady, He gave us all sufficient graces for her to say yes, but He was not. He didn't press the button, and she said yes. She had her free will. And she could have said no. And I think uh, either it's Bishop Sheen or uh, Chesterton who said, when the angel put his question to Our Lady, the universe held its breath. Everything hinged on that yes. Yeah, she is not replaceable. God does not create replaceable people. So whatever mission He had for you, no one else would be able to do it but you yes well that's interesting the way you put it although Mary was sinless she had in fact the fact that she was sinless meant that she had even she was able to exercise her free will better than we could right so the removal of sin doesn't remove free will it allows you to exercise it to its fullest extent because what is the purpose of our will <coughs> our, the pur- what is freedom freedom is not the right to do what you want or what I want Freedom is the grace to do what is right. That's freedom. It's freedom from sin. Right? Yes. Um, okay, let me say it slowly. The ark was 450 feet tall, 75 feet wide, and 45 feet high. All right? Good. Yes. See, that's interesting. But what is the, let, let, let's take that thought one step further. If you say, if we are not with Him, we are already cursed. Why? But why is that a curse? What is a curse? What is a curse? A curse is the opposite of a grace. Alright? So, when you are with God, doesn't He bless you? So justice requires that when you are away from Him, He curses you. Because if he didn't, if he didn't, then God would not be just. You can't curse yourself by not being with God. You know what I mean? It's like you, you know you're going to... No. I mean, if you know or not. But what you're... Un- what underlying all of this is the covenant. You see, if God did not establish the co- if he did not establish that covenant, he said, I will make the covenant. If he didn't say those words, it would not follow that if you're not with him, you're with the devil. The reason why if you're not with him, you're with the devil, is precisely because of the covenant. You understand? When the covenant triggers, it means you fall outside of the grace of God and you fall under a curse. What does it to mean to be with the devil? It means to be cursed. Who put that curse on us? He did, God. Yeah, from the beginning. Exactly. So that, therefore, the, the, the conclusion is that God does both. And He has to, otherwise He would not be just. When, when Jesus condemns somebody to hell, you understand, we cannot send ourselves to hell. Yeah, our actions are the reason why, but He has to condemn us to hell. What is that? That's a curse. You understand? Hold on a
0: second.
1: I just want to finish this point. Do you understand? God's justice hinges upon the fact that He does curse. If God did not curse, there would be no justice. Oh, that tsunami was absolutely a curse. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It was. That one. Oh, yeah. Now, there are certain events in nature that happen due to the general situation where we're into the disorder. But that particular tsunami, everything indicates it was, it was happening on Christmas night. I mean, there's a whole story behind it. Yeah. yeah. And the fact that people say, oh, no, God can't do that, is removing from us any sense of respect we owe God. Well, God, poor God. He can't do anything. It's nature. You know, what has what God to do? He's just... Santa sitting up there,
0: yeah.
1: It's Mother Nature, you know. Blame it on the woman again. Yes. Oh no 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 no. Hold on hold on hold on hold on. No no okay okay. Okay okay. Hold on hold on. Let's understand the curse. Okay. There is a Jewish rabbi who wrote a book called "Why Bad Things Happen to Good People," and then, and then hold on hold on, hold on and then. Uh, what's his name now? This philosopher. He's a great Catholic philosopher. O'Keefe? Yeah, he wrote, everything you wanted to ask about heaven and never dare to. Kraft. Peter Kraft wrote a, uh, a reply back that said, number one, nothing bad ever happens. And number two, nobody's good. Jesus himself says, and if you who are evil give good things to your children, how much more your Father in heaven? So, let's not presume of our own goodness Because apart from Jesus, there is none. Okay? None. So nobody's good. Only Jesus. Right? Only your son is blameless. He's the only one. No, 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 no. On our own. On our own. Apart from Jesus. There's no goodness in us. You understand that? Okay. So therefore, this notion of bad. What does bad mean? I have a whole lecture on this whole thing. What is something bad happens? Let's define our terms. We could say that something bad happens if something happens that is contrary to God's will. Why? Because everything that happens according to God's will leads to His glory. Therefore, it cannot be bad. You agree with me? If something bad ever happens, it means God is not omnipotent. He's not all-powerful. Hence, nothing bad ever happens. Everything that happens is for the greater glory of God. Here's our problem. We are concerned with us, not him. We don't seek first the glory of God. We're seeking our salvation. Seek ye first the kingdom of heaven. That's the glory of God. And everything else will be given unto you. St. Paul, all the time, for the greater glory of God. For the greater glory of God. Not for the greater glory of me. See? So now let's talk about a sickness. Is, is it really a bad thing? Well, It depends. If you're sick and you curse God and you, and you complain, right? you're piling upon yourself condemnation. If you're sick, you offer it up, unite yourself with the suffering of Jesus on the cross. You're gaining for yourself glory upon glory. Is it a bad thing? I just said, there are no good people. And they get sick so that they can unite themselves with the suffering of Jesus on the cross and gain for themselves eternal glory. All right? Our problem, it's not fair. Hold on, hold on, hold on. Okay, hold on. It's not fair? It's not fair? Let me, let me explain to you what is fair. Let, let's set a baseline here for fairness. Okay. What is fair is for all of us to go to hell. That's fair. What is fair is for all of us to go to hell. According to God's fairness, we should all be in hell. We are saved not because it's fair, but because God is merciful. He's way beyond fair. You understand? So we can't say it's not fair. Anybody who says it's not fair, it's a little bit of an indication of we really don't think you, God, you're going to take care of us. Never say that. God is all good. And everything He does for us is for our greater glory. For us, so that we can share with Him. Fair? We, we're going to spend the first 10,000 years in heaven going, thank you for all the sufferings you gave me. Thank you for all the sufferings you gave me. I wish you gave me more. I wish you gave me more. I wish you gave me more, more, more. Because we don't understand the value right now. We think it's not fair. No, 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 no. No. Is there like a specific... If there's something specific, in mind, maybe we can talk about it offline. But the, the, point, the general point is... Look at Jesus, look at Mary, look at the saints. Jesus said, take your cross and follow me. The word fair doesn't appear in Scripture anywhere. Never. There's no fairness. There's God's mercy. Alright? And we can talk more about it, maybe offline. Okay. Yeah? Alright. God bless you.